morning, everybody. Hey, uh, it is a privilege today to continue teaching out of Matthew. Um, so uh, just in, in short summary, what Dave and Tracy read just a minute ago is Jesus saying, hey, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow. Now, uh, a lot of us have probably attempted uh, trying to follow Jesus with a little bit more effort quite a bit, few more times. And so I've got a really kind of a funny clip I want to show you. Uh, let me know if this uh, resembles your life or your efforts at all as you attempt to follow Jesus. Go ahead and play that for me. Are you okay, honey? Anybody? This you? Yeah, yeah, me too. So uh, today's sermon, um, <laughs> uh, I have a, a little bit of reservation because I don't want to kind of set everyone up of like, okay, one more time, right? I've, I don't really want to do that to you, but I do kind of want to convince you like, no, get, get back up. The race is worth running, right? You've hit your face before, but don't stop. If, if you maybe heard the mom in the background, you okay, honey? Right? Like, <laughs> maybe that's what I hope to do today is we've all had a like, pff, and now I want to go, you, you okay? Like, hey, let's keep going. This is worth finishing the race at least. Uh, so <laughs> last week, uh, we left off with two big questions in the air. If you were not here or were not able to hear last week's teaching, it was all about Jesus claiming for himself the title of the Christ. It means the anointed one who comes to save we tied it to Genesis chapter 3 where uh, there's this interaction between the snake who deceives human beings, evil creeps into the world because of that. God then curses the snake, and in that curse to the snake, which represents spiritual evil in the world, uh, God also promises an anointed one who would rescue. Now, where we kind of left off with two big questions then was, well, one, if the anointed one has come, if the snake-crushing king has come, why does it still feel as though the snake is so, so active in our world? Um, and then the second question is, if I want to follow this Christ, then what are my next steps of obedience and of following this man, Jesus, the Christ? So today's whole teaching is going to give you a more in-depth answer, but just because I don't want to miss it in the, the, de- the breadth of it, here it is in summary. First answer. If the snake's been crushed, why does it feel as though he's still so active? Jesus has crushed, he has conquered the snake. He's gone into death and Hades, taken the keys from Satan's hands. So what that means now is Satan has no claim on those who are in Christ. That has happened. Those who are in Christ, death, Satan, Hades has no claim on them. We do not have to share a fate with the snake. On the day of judgment, we do not have to share the fate of destruction and judgment with the snake. Rather, a whole new way of life, redemption in Christ is open to us. All that is right now real, tangible, available to anyone who would come underneath the Christ. He has liberated us from death and Hades. He has guaranteed that he will destroy the snake because he's already gone into the snake's den, broken down the door, taken the keys, saved his saints, and he's proven he has the power that at the end of the days he will destroy the snake conclusively. Right now, we're in this in-between period where he is continuing to harvest his saints, call people to life rather than death, and so we are in an in-between. Christ has already liberated us, but he has not yet finished the job, and so we're in this in-between place called the now. This is what we continue to live in, and in the now, all people, including Jesus' people, 
have been unconsciously drinking the poison of the snake our whole lives. Without wanting to, without intending it, since the day we were born, we've been breathing in the air infected by the snake. So every human life then is inundated with the side effects of spiritual evil, which is why we keep going around the same old cycles. That's answer number one. Why is the snake still here? Answer number two, how then do I follow Jesus? This is why Jesus' very next call here in Matthew is for his followers to deny themselves to take up their cross and follow him. Jesus is calling his disciples to destroy the snake's influence in their life and to follow him in a new path of life that begins today. So here's our roadmap for today as we get into all that a little bit bigger. I'm going to structure the rest of our time today based off of the first sentence that Jesus opens with where he says, if anyone would come after me, do these three things. Or excuse me, first he invites people to come after him. Then he says, you must deny yourself. Then he says, take up your cross, then follow me. So I'm kind of subtitling that, that if we're going to come after Christ, it means we have to start our journey somewhere, right? If I'm going to follow you, it means I'm leaving where I am, which means I need to be aware of my starting place. And the starting place of humanity is spiritual ruin, but we've been invited to a new path of life. To begin that journey, we need to deny ourselves our old way of living and thinking. We need to lay down self-worship and embrace self-denial in order to follow their king. And if we walk that path, it involves taking up our cross, meaning our old self needs to die. Not be tuned up, not be tweaked, but die. And as we do that, we then have this new path ahead of us where we follow Christ. We are walking the path of eternal life that begins today. So let's uh, jump in, but would you pray with me one more time? Father, as we get into this, um, Lord, would you bring hope for all of us who've uh, come off the starting blocks and fallen face first? Um, I think, Lord, we need hope. We need reason to get up again because it really hurt when we fell on our face. And we've been disappointed, and it's happened repeatedly. We've had people kick us while we are down. Father, would you give us hope and energy to chase after you as we run this race until the day we die? Would you give us clarity and give me clarity and confidence to preach your word today? Amen. So let's start with Jesus' very first invitation. He says, come after me. So what we looked at last week is that the coming of the Christ has a gift in it. The gift of the coming of the Christ is he's saying you're really valuable. You're worth rescuing, right? The reason I'm coming to get you is because you really, really matter to me. So there's a gift of the Christ that he's teaching us how much immense value in a a position we have in his kingdom. But the coming of Christ also has a sober edge. It has the revelation of our need, the fact that something's not quite right, right? Something's very, very wrong, which means there is an anointed one that must come. We've fallen from glory and grace and now live in a state of ruin needing rescue. And as I use this language of spiritual ruin, some of us like probably have had a hard enough week that we go, yeah, yep. Some of us have been like cruising. We've been doing pretty good. And so we, we wrestle with this. Like spiritual ruin sounds really, really rough. Now, with this, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to communicate denigration of you or the people in your life. I'm not trying to heap toxic shame from the pulpit and teach fire and brimstone. Because ruin does not communicate lack of value. In fact, the reason ruin is tragic 
is because there's so much value in the first place. Anyone here ever taken a new truck out four-wheeling in the woods? You hear that very first branch, and you cringe, right? Because the truck's so new and nice. I've got an old 1990 F-250. I don't care. I've re-roofed my house once. You know what I did with those shingles? You think I, like, carried them down the ladder and gently placed them in the back of that 30-year-old pickup truck? Throw them off the roof. Oh, I hit hit the roof of the car. Well, that's why I have a 30-year-old pickup. Ruin matters because it communicates the value of the thing being ruined. And then also, restoration means something more given the fact that something's been ruined. Anyone here interested in restored classic cars? Part of the reason those are so beautiful is because of how you picked them up off the lot, right? They've been rusting for 30, 40 years, and now look at the beauty. So ruin communicates value to start with, and restoration communicates the value that comes out of something being made whole again. Now, here's the reason I um, assume that we are all ruined. Like I said earlier, it's because we have been infused with the poison of the snake simply by being alive. There's this old story, maybe you guys have heard of it. Uh, there's, there's three fish, two of them are buddies, they're kind of young fish, they're hanging out in maybe like a kelp patty, and then an older fish swims by and he goes, hey gentlemen, how's the water today? And the two young fish go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the old guy swims by and the two young guys look at each other and they go, what the heck is water? You guys ever heard this? The idea is when you're surrounded by something, breathing it, taking it in, sometimes you forget that it's even there. How many of you guys forget that there's air around you all the time, right? It's just, it's so commonplace, so inundated in our life that we forget it's even there. Now, what I'm trying to say here is you and I all grew up in a world racked with sin and imperfection, right? Since the day you were born, you were born into an imperfect family. You grew up with imperfect friends in an imperfect school. You yourself brought an imperfect heart to your relationships. Can anyone imagine a world where there's like not a world of war going on somewhere or there's not a shooting going on somewhere or there's not an addiction problem somewhere or there's not a homelessness problem somewhere or there's not conflict in a family somewhere? Like, it is just the state of the world to the point that we think when it's just not that bad, it's really good. My point is that it's so prevalent around us we forget it is shaping who we are. We have all been spiritually formed, spiritually shaped into who we are. Forces have acted on you and I. We have received or denied influences to become who we are today. So Jesus' language here is simply acknowledging that we have all been formed and shaped by imperfection around us. None of us can escape that. And oftentimes, that formation looks like deformation. Does anyone relate to that? The influences and the people in your life having a a twisting effect on the way you see the world or live? Or that what you bring to the picture having a twisting effect on relationships or your life? So what Jesus here is saying is that we've all been formed, in fact, mostly deformed, but I am here as the Christ to reform, to restore human beings, into something beautiful and whole, something whole. So, as I'm saying all that, and it sounds a little bit grim, I've got this next slide because it's really important. Though every single human by default is ruined, this is our default state, this is not 
the character that most suits the human soul. What most fits the human soul is the character of Christ, his likeness. It is his likeness is the fullness, the maturity, the, the goodness that humanity is meant to live into. Now, let me explain that a little bit. Uh, how many of you guys have ever felt about yourself or felt in your own heart something bitter or condemning or mean or insecure, something maybe even childish? Anyone? Great. There was a lot of hands not raised. Yeah, why don't you guys come preach, okay? Uh, we've all felt this, right? Now, how many of you guys, when you've lived in that or you've been on the receiving end of that, thought, you know what? This is such a good fit for my soul. They look great as childish and condemning. That's exactly how God's made them to be. That is their most mature, most flourishing. That's when I'm at my best. Anyone ever thought that? No, no, we like, we groan because even in our anger when other people do that, or even in our frustration when we do that ourselves, we recognize the sadness that it is that way. When the people around us or when we act out of something bitter and condemning or childish, the reason it pains us is because it is not the fullness of what we would dream of. It is not the fullness of our potential. Now, contrast that with what people are like and what we are like when we are the most flourishing, when we are the best version of ourselves, when, when you would meet someone and say, man, what an amazing human being they are. What sort of qualities would they have? When someone is peaceful but not compromising, when someone is strong but tender, comfortable but not arrogant, when someone is generous and patient and slow to anger, we call them mature, right? Mature meaning fully grown. We use this language with plants and fruit trees, right? When something has grown into its fullness and now in its maturity is bearing fruit. We do not call something mature when it is stunted and deprived. So what I'm comparing here is the reality that what we're aching for is maturity, fullness of the image of God in us. But what we so often experience is deformation, living stunted and deformed, deprived lives. And as we seek to grow into maturity, uh, as we seek to grow into fullness, this does not happen just by living. Can you guys give me a nod of your head if you agree with that? Matureness does not happen by accident. You, we have to purposefully walk on a journey of transformation into Christ's likeness to see the fullness of Christ grow up in us. Dallas Willard, a, a, a Christian theologian and philosopher I really, really love, says this. It's a bit of a long quote. Bear with me. He says this. The initiative in the process is always God's, and we would, in fact, do nothing without his initiative. However, that initiative is not something we're waiting on. The ball is, as it were, in our court. God has already invaded human history and reality. Jesus has already died on our behalf. He is risen. He is now supervising events on earth toward an end that he will certainly bring to pass to the glory of God. The issue now concerns what we will do. Now, lest that come across as too legalistic, he brings some more clarity. He says this, the transformation of the inner being is as much or more a gift of grace, as is our justification before God. But of course, neither one is wholly passive. To be forever lost, you need only do nothing. Just stay the course. 
which leads us to the question, what will I do? Will I stay the course or will I, as Jesus invites me as a follower, to come after him into a new way of being? Jesus says, come after me, right? He's already blazed the trail. He's already left his tracks to follow. He's already left a church to guide and equip and train. He's invited us to come. And so the very first thing that we do, if we want to follow him, is to set our minds on the things of God. If you look at verse 23, Jesus' critique to Peter at this point is, you have your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. Do you want to come after me? Set your minds on the things of God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. So to set our minds on the things of God means to um, be centered on God's will for us rather than our own self-will, which leads us to the second section. If we are coming after Christ, it starts with denying ourselves. And I've subtitled this self-worship versus self-denial. Now, to better understand this, quick question. You don't have to answer this, but just think about it for a second. What is a good life? And how do you determine when life is going well? Now, the default ruined perspective that we all come to the table with is when we measure what we feel about the things in life, we'll ask simple questions like, am I getting the things I want? It's a good life when I'm getting the things I want. When life's going well, it's because I'm getting everything that I want, right? It's not because I'm disappointed and frustrated and left out feeling angry at the world. Now, this is called self-worship in the language of Jesus because its primary reference point, its primary perspective is myself. Do I get what I want? This is when we operate at, with ourselves at center, and I'll explain that more. So when I reject God being in charge, we'll say things like, I am my own man, right? I'm my own woman. No one tells me what to do, right? That's legalistic, or that's oppressive, or that's domineering. So to do that, we have to pretend that God is not God. In order for me to be my own man, I have to pretend that God is not over me. I have to sidestep his authority and his reality in the cosmos to believe that I am my own man. Now, Dallas Willard came up with a really great little visual. Some of you guys have seen this. I use it quite often to understand this idea of the center of me. Am I at the center or is God at the center? So here's a really quick graphic I'm going to put on the screen. Uh, the way that Dallas Willard explains this is that the center of every human being is our heart or our spirit or our will. This is the decision-making center. This is the thing that says yes or no to uh, our thoughts and our actions. In addition to our, our, our heart, we have our mind. This includes our thoughts and our feelings. You guys know this. Our thoughts and our feelings can put pressure on our hearts, but ultimately there's a separate part of us that decides yes or no. You guys ever felt that? The competing voices? But there's something at the core that says, that one. That's what I'm going to do. In addition to our, uh, our hearts and our mind, we have our body, which has its own desires, right? Our, bodies, our body has chemistry, and, uh, and the chemistry of our body can put pressure on our heart but primarily, our body is the thing that we use to get what our heart wants. Do I want vengeance? My heart directs my body to use my fists and my tongue, right? Do I want affection and care? My heart directs my body to open itself for a hug or tears, right? So our hearts use 
our body to get what we want. And then in addition to that, and I won't go into these last two very much, we have our social life. These are the people and the context around us that influence us. But this is also the relationships where our hearts play their character out. How you know what's in someone's heart is how they interact socially, right? This is why, uh, what is it, integrity is the things you do alone, right? Like you kind of know what's in someone's heart based on the way they act in public versus private. Uh, And then the last thing that Dallas Willard uses is this language of the soul, which is a little bit different. The soul is not the blue fuzzy thing that like comes out of our our mouth when we die. The soul, as Dallas Willard uses it, and I think this is very biblical, the soul is like the thing that holds it all together. The, The soul like takes all the components and makes it a being. An example, if I have a cell phone, my cell phone has a a SIM card, right? My cell phone also has a camera. My cell phone also has a a processor. But you would call it a cell phone. Similar to you, we have a decision-making center. We have minds and thoughts and feelings, and we have all these things. But at some point, there's something that pulls it all into a person. And Jesus is asking here that we deny, that we change the way we live at the very center of who we are. Am I living my life where I run the decision-making center of my heart, or am I giving that position up to something else? That was a long explanation. Thanks for letting me. That was just to tee this next part up. Now, when we are, when you and I are in that central ruling place in our lives, our lives tend to look a bit like this. This is what uh, Dallas Willard called disintegration where my heart wants something over here, my mind and my feelings are telling me to do this, my body's yearning over here, my peers and my social context is pushing me a different direction. Everything's kind of chaotic. And so my soul struggles to pull it all together into one consistent, uh, mature human being. Instead, everything is scattered. And the reason this is, is because our hearts are not consistent. Have you guys ever felt this? You wake up in the morning, I'm gonna get out of bed and go to the gym. Five minutes later, I'm not getting out of bed and going to the gym, right? Because my heart is fickle. My heart is all over the place. My heart does not have the staying power to be consistent enough to pull everything into alignment. Everything else is trying to match a heart that's here and then there and then there and then there. And so everything is thrown into disintegration. Now, worse only than this being frustrating, or or worse only than our hearts being inconsistent, is that our hearts, where do they start out at, at by default? spiritual ruin. So not only is the problem that our hearts are inconsistent, but that our hearts by default will be spiritually ruined. They're pursuing ruin, even if we're unaware of it, because we've been influenced and stunted by the snake's work in the world. So there are three simplified results of self-worship when I run my heart, when I run the decision-making center of my heart. Three simplified things I'm going to get into today. First one is simply weariness. Just tiredness, because we exhaust ourselves fighting ourselves. You guys ever felt that, like, I'm just so tired of being inconsistent in my heart. I'm so constantly at battle with the various parts of me. My body wants this. My mind's telling me this. It's exhausting. And the result is our lives are muddled and confused. The result is our lives are spent chasing multiple goals at the same time. And over the course of a couple days, my goal is my, my comfort. No, my goal is my success. No, my goal is my virtue. No, I want to be patient in this fight, but I also want to get my way when I'm fighting with my spouse, right? This, like, our hearts are at, in this tug of war, and it is exhausting and leaves the people around us confused. 
Now, even worse than being exhausted and confused, when we are at the center of our hearts, we actually bring evil. It's a big word, but when my way is the central part of my life, it is not very long before something outside of me will cross my will. And if I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get my will, I bring evil into the world. Now, evil can be very, very obvious, but evil can also be very subtle. Obvious, it could be hurting or dominating or abandoning the people around us to get the needs that we feel. But evil can also be subtle. It can, be, it can manipulate a narrative to get what we want, to defend ourselves. It can be evil because we turn the story to protect ourselves. It can be small. We fudge a few numbers on our taxes. Evil can also be caused by omission, the failure to act, right? A willingness to diminish ourselves out of self-preservation. Worse than exhaustion, worse than evil is what the Bible calls, or what the Bible talks about of being of soul ruin. And I know I've already said that we all start here, but the Bible also talks about this being an ending place. This being a destination that you cannot go back from. A life of self-worship over time makes us into the kind of people for whom away from God is our only comfortable place. Let me explain that. Life with God requires a worshipful perspective. Notice, life with God. Not an argument with God, not a debate with God, not rejection of God. Life with God, fullness of being, requires seeing him for his goodness and his glory. And that will always supersede our own self-worship. It will always, 100% of the time, if we're living in life with him, it will supersede our self-worship. But if we are unable or unwilling to give up our self-worship, the only place we'll ever be comfortable is away from him. Christian tradition and Jesus uses a language of people lost in self-worship as being that, lost. And it is because people are lost that they end up in the wrong place, what we would call hell. So hell then is the destination of constant effort in avoiding the reign of God. And hell, this destination of ultimate lostness, is the greatest description, the greatest tragedy of ruined human soul. Now, again, I use the word evil. That's pretty heavy. Even as I, like, point the word evil at my own life, I, I do a bit of, like, whoa, I'm definitely, like, I'm not great, but I'm not evil. That feels really heavy. Now, even if you're not willing to acknowledge that, at least receive this if you would. Maybe you relate to me. My self-worship might not lead me to heinous crimes, what I think we'd all agree as evil, my self-worship absolutely leads me to diminished living, to stunted life. Through temporary satisfactions and distractions, it results and leads me into relational avoidance. It leads me to stifled passion. And it leads me to lack of kingdom living. So I might not, you might not want to label it evil, but at least grant it is definitely not the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. And it is still an effort to avoid God, remaining lost. That brings me back to the question, well, what then is a good life? What is Jesus kind of teeing up here? 
Jesus is inviting us to change the measurement of a good life, right? If a, if a, a default ruined state is good life is I get what I want, a renewed life in the way of Jesus coming after him is denying myself, putting him on the throne, so a good life is now when Jesus gets what he wants. When Jesus gets what he wants in my life, through my body, through my mouth, through my heart, that is then a good life, regardless of how painful it might be. It is a good life. So self-denial is not denying myself, excuse me, self-denial then is to deny myself the central ruling place in my life, but it's not just because I need to get kicked out of the door. It's for the sake of letting Jesus then be my center, or in the language of Matthew, be my king. Denying myself means letting Jesus be my king, my ruler, my sovereign. He he dictates the movements of my life. I'm happy when he's happy. Now, importantly, self-denial does not mean self-rejection. It does not mean hating ourselves. That is a misunderstanding that has caused a lot of pain and tragedy. And if you right now are cringing at the idea of self-denial or or putting God, like, do do I really want God on the throne of my life? If you're cringing, it's probably because your current understanding of Jesus is not fully developed. If we take a misconception of God that is made up of a long list of do's and don'ts and reprimands, and we try to take that version of God and we put that version into the throne of our lives, the result will be self-shame and claustrophobia. And it will not be a good life. But Jesus here is offering for him to reign, not a misconception, but the fullness of the Christ. And Jesus the Christ is not abusive. Jesus the Christ is not dominating. He is not dismissive of his people's needs or his passions or their fears. He describes himself as gentle and lowly. Gentle. He describes himself as a good and a kind shepherd. This one might seem a little bit silly, but it helps me remember his goodness. Jesus co-authored with God the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. It's a day literally intended just for play and delight and rest. He's like the boss that you're working for, and he goes, hey, you look really tired. Why don't you take a day off? That's a good boss, right? That's the, pers- that's the boss we want to serve under, not the misconceived boss that says work harder, do better. Are you coming in on Sunday? When are you going to put in some overtime, right? But that's not the boss of the king, or that's not the boss who is the king of the universe. This is a kind and a good king. And this king wants you in your self-denial to still be present. He just doesn't want you ruling. And in a world where human beings give God the reign of their lives, we have incredible potential for restoration because of where he leads us. When the real Christ is central, he tells us that he brings rest for our souls. He brings freedom from our burdens. He gives us new hearts that beat with righteousness and grace and vibrancy as we participate in his kingdom. We have new lives that are full of flourishing as we give of ourselves. So for me, as I consider self-denial practically, it is really helpful not to think of self-denial as a long string of strenuous acts of will. Self-denial is not a string of strenuous acts of will. What I mean by that is it is not a life doing this. Clenched jaws, trying to get it right this time and the next time and the next time and the next time. 
it's helpful to realize what Jesus is talking about here is self-denial, but it is an open-handed, settled condition of life. It's a decision in my heart to open my hands around my decisions. I decide, I decide now to decide later to follow him when it's hard. And the result of this, when I open my hands, when I open the center of who I am and I let Jesus be king, because he is consistent where I am not and because he is good where I am not, the result is what Dallas Willard calls an integrated life. And he uses this graphic where before all the parts of me were in conflict and they're all kind of jutting off, seeking their own things. Now, there's something at the center that's strong enough and consistent enough and beautiful enough that it wins all of me and it doesn't change. And it creates a life that is peaceful and joyful and compassionate. Is this still hard to live in as a human being? Yes, because our hearts are wrestling all the time. But in concept, Jesus as king is the best way of living a human being could ever have. And for all of Jesus' kindness, for all of his gentleness and his meekness, is still not lax. He is not lax because he sees reality very, very clearly, right? He knows something drastic needs to occur for restoration to happen. This is why the Christ, the anointed one, came not just to preach a couple good sermons and then fly off to heaven. He came to die because he knew something drastic had to happen to change reality, which is why he then tells his followers, take up your cross. How much more drastic can you get? He follows that up by saying, whoever would save his life will lose it. You want your old life where you're the king and you reign and you're disintegrated? It's not going to work. But if you're willing to lose your life, to open up your heart and let me be ruling and center, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find good living. And when Jesus here references, take up your cross, this is the very first time in the book of Matthew that the cross is mentioned. And notice how it's kind of this glancing illusion. It's, it's kind of pointed at his followers. Did you guys catch that? Take up your cross, right? But what does he say, like, two seconds right before that? Come after me and take up your cross like I do, like I will. So here, Jesus, for the very first time, is not only pointing his disciples to the cross, he's pointing them that he will do it first. It's this forward look to Jesus' ministry of the cross. Now, uh, what, is, what does it mean to take up your cross? So uh, Joey and I were actually, we met this week, we were talking through some church stuff and some life stuff, and um, he was just asking me about my sermon preparation, and uh, I was sharing some of this with him. And we had a really good conversation. Like, well, here, when Jesus says, take up your cross, is he meaning, like, being will be willing to die for the gospel, actually be willing to be crucified, be willing to give up your life? Or, or is he talking about something more, like, philosophical, where, about, like, uh, making small decisions that are giving up of ourselves? You know, which of those two is he really getting at here? And if you think about the life of Jesus' followers, it becomes very clear that for many of his disciples, following him did mean martyrdom. It did mean death. It did mean a willingness to be faithful to the point of death. But as we even think about that a little bit more, 
No one's willing to die for Christ without a long string of decisions of faithfulness that came before it. Clearly, this, any act of martyrdom or self-sacrifice was preceded by many, many heart-level decisions that I will give up my old self to receive new life in Christ in obedience. So it means clearly both. And Jesus' point here in using this, the cross, this implement of torture and death, his point here is that like, our old ruined selves don't just need a tune-up. We don't just need to go on a retreat and then we're good to go, right? What he is saying is, the old snake-stunted me needs to die. All the old parts of me infused by the snake need to be cut off and killed so we can find new life purely remade in the image of Christ. Not just a tune-up, pure resurrection. Now, as we move practically to think about that, we're probably asking stuff like, well, how much of me needs to die, right? I'm pretty hesitant to go through that, right? You know, there's some things I don't really want to change. They're hard, or I like them, or my situation is comfortable, or what you're asking me to do is really uncomfortable. Do I really have to give up blank? You fill that in. Do I really have to give up this, Jesus? As soon as we start asking those questions, it's like trying to take the snake back into the kingdom. Do I really have to give up my old snake-infested self when I enter the kingdom of God? Can I hold on to a little bit of the snake's poison? I kind of like some of it. It is literally holding on to death and poison when we are unwilling to give up the wholeness of ourselves to Christ. And maybe even now, like, our questioning, I know I feel this. I'm not sure if I can let go of this habit. I'm not sure if I can let go of this pain. I'm not sure if I can let go of this anger. And in my experience, part of what makes this idea of giving up so hard is we misunderstand what Jesus is doing. We think that by giving up, we're losing, right? When I give this up, it's a, a net minus to my life. So to give means to give up and to lose. But the mathematics of the kingdom of God is, it's like two negatives make a positive somehow. When we give and when we forgive, it is actually gain in the kingdom of God. And I would even say, like, rationally, once we play this out a little bit, we realize how true it is. How many of you guys have ever been in a fight and realized that by being willing to give up something, you actually brought wholeness and reconciliation and understanding? right? And, and you've also experienced when I will not give this up. How much pain and destruction has that caused in your life? In the mathematics of the kingdom of God, giving up is gain. There's this great little story. Give me two minutes. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. Um, and it's this like bizarre bit of allegory where uh, there's this like gray world below. It's kind of like earth. And there's all these ghosts beings that live in this um, kind of like purgatory space. And, and C.S. Lewis is not trying to make any theological arguments. He's just trying to open our imaginations with this. And there's this gray world below. And then up above, there's this heavenly space full of green, um, green pastures. And above these green pastures is like the shining city of completion. It's this image of heaven. 
And every once in a while, there's these buses that go down to the gray world, and people, these like ghost creatures can load up on the bus and go up to the green pastures, and they can talk to these angelic beings and look at the city of the kingdom of God and decide if they want to go up. And one of these characters, these gray ghostly creatures, goes to this pasture land, and he's talking with an angel. And in the backdrop is kind of this, like, gray earth below and the shining kingdom of God above. And in this middle space, uh, this gray ghost shows up, and he's got this red lizard kind of draped around his neck. And the lizard's kind of, like, whispering things in his ear and every once in a while, like, biting him. And, and this angelic being comes up and says, hey, would you like me to kill that for you? And, and the ghost says, no, 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 it's my pet. I've, I've had it for a very long time. And the angelic being, are you sure? It's, it's, it looks like it's really painful. In fact, it looks like it's clawing, scratching, and biting you. And, and it looks like a burden. It looks heavy. Are you sure you don't want me to take that and kill that for you? And this gray creature says, no, no, no. I, I've had this since, since I was a boy. It's, it's been my lifelong thing. I'm, I'm familiar with it. it. It bites me, but I know what to expect. And this creature's name, in, in this particular story, this creature's name is lust. Anyone ever experienced your own physical appetite biting you, scratching you, creating a burden in your life, right? But we're not quite willing to let it go, right? I'm familiar with it. It does something for me. I'll, I'll, I'll tame it. I'll, I'll, I'll get it to be better next time, right? And this heavenly creature finally, like, pleads, would you please let me kill it? And so the, the, the man gives him permission. The, the angelic being grabs it off his shoulders and throws it on the ground and stomps it and twists its neck and it dies. And this um, red lizard, in its death, then like rolls over and gets back up and sounds a bit like M. Night Shyamalan, but hang on. It, it like gets up and transforms into a white steed. This is weird. Bear with me. And the man now, free of his burden, mounts the steed and rides to the kingdom of heaven. Here's the point. How many of us have burdens that cause destruction in our lives that we're really used to, that we're willing to put up with a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more? And what God's actually asking us to do is to throw it down and kill it so it can be transformed and restored into something good. God created sexuality. It's meant to be a gift that creates intimacy and love and trust and family and all the beauty that goes with it. And yet, how often is it just a burden in our lives? And it's because we have this stunted, snake-infected version of it that it doesn't do what it's meant to. And it's not until the snake-infested version gets killed and it's resurrected into the fullness of what God wants it to be that it can actually do something productive in our life and usher us into the kingdom of God. This is everything. This is not one lizard. Like, this is the wholeness of our hearts need to die in order to turn into the fullness of what God's made it to be so it can usher us into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And this here is so bizarrely liberating when we realize, like, it's not just one, like, lizard on my shoulder, but it is the whole of who I am. This is so liberating because of this. We don't have to defend it anymore. You guys ever found yourself in an argument defending something you knew was wrong? If we embrace the way of Jesus, he's simply saying, you don't need to defend and justify and excuse what's twisted and corrupt. You can hate it along with the people you care about. 
and you can work together to remove it, to kill it, to see it be resurrected into the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. This, the giving up of something turns into gain, right? You gain partnership. You gain trust through the act of confession, through the act not of defending what is hurting you and the people around you, but by giving it up, by realizing it needs to die so it can be remade more beautiful. And how many interactions of our, in our lives would go differently if we adopted this? If we adopted that I don't need to defend the broken, stunted parts of me, I don't need to defend the parts of me that acted hurtfully. I don't need to defend the parts of me that slipped back into whatever. But rather, I can understand, give to Christ, and partner with the people around me to receive healing and renewal. That sounds like fullness of life rather than a bunch of stunted arguments and isolation and self-justification. Nod your head if you agree with this statement. I know something in my life needs to change for me to experience fullness in Jesus' kingdom. Something needs to change. I believe this is it. For all its complexity and its challenges, I believe this is it. This is a willingness to come after Christ, to deny ourselves reign of our hearts, to be willing to die, to lose our life, now, losing our lives doesn't mean misplacing it. Like, whoops, I lost it. Like, losing it is the willing, repetitive, giving it up to God. And through his work, he restores and transforms the human heart till we have abundant life here, now, and in eternity. And interestingly, Dallas Willard has this great phrase. I love this. I hope you enjoy this. If we do this, if we give, up, if we give God the central ruling place in our hearts, we let him transform us, you will get to do whatever you want. You will get to lie and cheat and steal all that you want, which will be none at all. And you will also get to do everything you want. You will get to give and forgive and serve and evangelize. You will get to give generously. You will get to go on mission. You will get to do all the things that you actually want to do that is a life worth living. That in giving up of our old life, it comes with the life that we wanted all along. A life full of meaning and contentedness and peace and joy. And even as I say all that, I realize this is hard. And I want to point out that repeated unwanted behavior, repeated unwanted behavior is not caused by a lack of shame or despair. We all probably have enough shame and despair in our lives. And we find ourselves in the same old loops, right? Repeated stuck behavior is caused by a lack of hope. And Christ here is offering us hope unlike anything we could ever muster up on our own. He provides hope for belonging. He provides hope for renewal. He provides hope of a life that is aligned with the beautiful will of God. And Walter Brueggemann, a missiologist, has this great little line. It's very academic. I'm going to translate it when we're done, okay? When we think about change, when we think about hope, here's what he says. We now know through Jesus that human transformation does not happen through didacticism, which means good lesson teaching, or through excessive certitude, which means really, really strong beliefs. Human transformation happens through the playful entertainment 
of another scripting of reality that may subvert the old given text and its interpretation, lead to the embrace of an alternative text in its redescription of reality. That was dense. Here's what he's getting at. Transformation comes with a willingness to hope for and imagine an abundant life with God at center. Transformation rarely happens when we beat ourselves with a whip of shame again and again and again. Transformation comes when we lay down our burdens and imagine with hope what God might do in our lives and the world around us. And we imagine our role in that. We imagine what, what would it be like for me to wake up with God at my center? In the moment of struggle and temptation to change and give God the center again, what might that beautiful reality and abundant life look like? I want to point us back to Jesus calling himself gentle and lowly. Where we end is Jesus' final invitation. He says, come after me. Leave where you're at. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And I've subtitled this, Walking the Path of Eternal Life. So Jesus, when he said, follow me, he understood the best life to be defined by this. Quote, this is from Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Make him center. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, the best human experience is a life full of love for God, the center of who we are, and a life of love for the people around us, regardless of our friends or our enemies, if they serve us or harm us. And I want to point this out. Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. This is the greatest commandment. Now, in my mind, I usually kind of translate the greatest commandment to mean the biggest law, right? This is the biggest law. If I playfully reimagined life with God at the center, I wonder if he's saying this is the greatest. This is the greatest, you guys. This is the best instruction anyone could ever get. This is the greatest instruction and training and reality that anyone could ever teach a human being. And as Jesus himself put God at the center of his life, this is what came out. When Jesus loved God with his whole self, what came out was love of neighbor. What came out was a willingness to follow God to the point of self-sacrificial death as an act of love for his neighbor. And as we end, I want to point out the suffering of Jesus was not for nothing. There was no virtue in pain for the sake of pain. Jesus suffered, absolutely. He courageously suffered pain And he gave himself for the restoration of his people. He endured in order to create a new future that we get to imagine ourselves being part of. Here's why I point that out. When we think of Jesus being center, and and it's it's on the heels of him saying, and and go suffer and die, like we can kind of misinterpret that to think of Jesus as just the Scrooge that wants us to suffer because it's virtuous. Suffer because that's just the right thing to do for some manner. But not at all. Jesus here is saying the death of our old self, all the suffering and the work of discipline and decisions in living this new life, all of them are for something good. They're for the sake of killing the snake in us. They're for the sake of healing our hearts, restoring our relationships, for bringing those who are lost home. 
into God's kingdom. And the reason I appreciate and respect this so much is Jesus and Orthodox Christianity is so honest about the reality of suffering in the world. The reality is like we will all suffer. No matter how strategic or successful you are, we will all suffer. But here Jesus uses that to open up a path of life. Rather than suffering, spinning us off into self-worship and bitterness and frustration and despair, Jesus uses suffering through self-sacrifice to kill the old in us and give us new wholehearted life in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Mark. And as we follow Jesus, are there practical things that you and I can do to aid the shaping of his image in us? That was a weird way of saying that. Let me say that again. Is there anything that we can do to help this take place? Yes. There's a history of practices in the Christian tradition that shape the human heart to be more like Christ. And I'm not meaning to be simplified here. I'm trying to point us to good living. Things like prayer and fasting. Prayer is putting us in communion with God, putting him at the center. Fasting is giving up of my flesh, orienting my body around his will, giving is being generous to take my selfish self off the throne and to put God on. To serve is to give up of my way to pursue his way. To take in scripture is to know him accurately. To meditate on him is to change my mind. To Sabbath is to enjoy his generosity. And Jesus saw all those practices as not only being a good way of being human, but having a formative, shaping effect on the human heart. Those are some of the things he's gifted us with that align all the parts of us to be consistent for him. They're the things that make being with God being home. Now, a simple tool I want to give you is the same exact tool we gave you three months ago. There are these little uh, brown books called a PDP, a personal discipleship plan. They're over, there's a stack of them by the door there, and there's another stack on a connect cart out in the lobby. If you're interested in following the way of Jesus, but you don't know where to start, there is a practical set of things he's given us that shape our lives. And I'm not being religious or moralistic here. I'm genuinely trying to point us to a good way of living that makes us at home with God and his presence. Those little PDPs, like 12 pages, there's three categories of things you can do to spend time with God, to spend time in the beauty of his community, and to give out of a um, pursuing his will in the world to live missionally and in service. And here's where we'll end. All of this is really clumsy. Every single step of the way of this is going to be clumsy. Clumsy is as good as it gets. But there's a very big difference between rejecting Christ and falling on our face following him. Right? The girl on the track, she was running the race. She face planted. It was a hard race, but she was running the race. There's a very big difference between rejecting the track, rejecting the will and the effort of following Christ versus stumbling our way along it. Uh, Jared showed me this uh, one more funny clip I want to show you. Uh, Back in like 2016, it's about 13 seconds. I hope you enjoy it. Go ahead. This is us. This is our life in the kingdom of God. 
fumbling all over ourselves, but we're on the escalator. We're willing to fumble our way, and often it is the grace of God that takes what little will we put in and brings us upward into his kingdom, into the process of transformation. So this week, as you like fall over, keep that in your mind. Grace of God is carrying me into a new life and new kingdom as long as I stay in it. As soon as I reject it and I want my will, that's dangerous waters. But if we stay in the game, over the long haul, we will be renewed in the image of Christ more and more and more. Would you pray with me real fast? Father, as we conclude, um, Lord, would you cement in any good news uh, as we think of you, the Christ, uh, as you tell us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, to die, this is not... um, It looks like a pronouncement of death, but it's actually a way of life. Would you help us see it, receive it, believe it, and follow you, and to join in partnership the people around us to put to death our old selves, rather than justify and excuse? Jesus, would you come and in your spirit transform us, point things out with specifics so we know what to work on, and would you lead us forward in faithfulness? Amen. Now, if you are a a close reader of Scripture, you would say, well, Trevor, you forgot about the last two verses. You know the part where he says, what will it profit a man to gain uh, gain the world, forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then the Son of Man will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I didn't forget him. I was saving him for communion. As we follow this Christ, there are three things that this section points out. One, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the temptation of Satan in the wilderness that Jesus actually walked. Satan, the snake, the source of spiritual evil in the world, said, Jesus, Son of God, Give up anything to have the whole world. Would you give up your role as God's son? Would you give up yourself? And Jesus said, no. Because his eyes were on our restoration. His eyes were on keeping God's will central in his life rather than living out of a disintegrated self. This is Jesus willing to give up everything in order to give himself for his followers. The second thing that this points out, this verse, um, what shall a man or woman give in return for his soul? I think in layman's terms, what could you give to save your soul? And that's a legitimate question. Like, what could you give? What on earth could you muster up and bring before the throne of God in in, um, exchange for your soul. The reason I say this for communion is because we don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to bartering with God. We do not have the merit required, and yet the Christ, the anointed one, stepped in to mediate for us. He stepped in to bring his merit, to bring his spiritual wealth in exchange for our souls. In the last section, the Son of Man going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
This is beautiful and terrifying. Jesus will come back in full glory, and he will repay. He will bring with him retributive justice. He will pay people for full. He will pay people in full for their actions, both the good and the bad. So this is a call for you and I not to approach the table of Christ, not to approach the judgment of God based on our own merits, because he will judge according to the good and the bad. So the only way of life, the only hope we have as we come to the person of God is to come underneath the covering of Christ. So we receive the repayment of Christ, blessing and honor. Our goal is to walk through the door of grace opened by the Christ so we can be repaid according to what he has done. Band, would you guys join me on stage? I'd like to pray for us one final time. Jesus, as we take communion today, Lord, would you give us honesty for what we bring to the table? Aside from you, aside from your uh, justification, your righteousness, what would we bring to the table? I think it's clear, my heart, I would bring a heap of snake-poisoned mush and try to use that to barter for life in your kingdom. And the good news here is I don't have to. Jesus, you have given up all your wealth and your status to cover me with your righteousness. So now I come to uh, God and his judgment saying, judge me by Christ. Nothing else. He is the reigning center of my heart. I live for him. I've walked in his path. Jesus, would you um, convict us if we're not walking in alignment with you or walking under your covering, if we are worshiping ourselves knowingly, would you help us give that up? And where it is unknowing, would you help us give it up too? Amen.